Welcome to This Is America, June 2nd, 2022. In this episode, we speak with two folks involved in ongoing resistance to development by the University of California at People's Park in so-called Berkeley. We then switch to our discussion where we tackle the culture of mass shootings and growing tensions within the Republican Party and the rise of dark MAGA. All this and more, but first, let's get to the news. A hunger strike that began in mid-May at the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma, Washington, ended after a week with concessions being made, according to the Seattle Times. According to the group La Resistencia, detainees were provided clean clothes, but only in the unit where the strike began, and improved food portions. The group said more immigration and customs enforcement agents were sent to the detention center to handle cases, which was one of the protesters' demands. The strikers also asked for better cleaning of the facility and units, more nutritious food, better access to medical services and jobs that pay a minimum wage. Nine people took part in the hunger strike at the fenced facility, which is among the largest immigration detention centers in the U.S., and where people are held as they go through immigration status proceedings. Soon after, another hunger strike began, as one local report wrote, It's the second hunger strike in as many weeks at the facility, both over concerns over a recent rise in COVID cases there. Detainees also complain that the food is often cold and the commissary is expensive. Lara Sistencia alleges that those in quarantine are in conditions similar to solitary confinement, and that the solitary unit in WIC, called Unit H, is currently full. On May 26, detainees in Unit F4 have ended their hunger strike, according to advocacy group Lara Sistencia. Maruvi Lalpando says that Jack Lippard, ICE assistant officer in charge, met with the hunger strikers Wednesday. She says Lippard told them that after reviewing their cases ICE did not think they could be released. Instead, Vilal Pondo says, he told them to request bond at their next court hearing. Despite the setback, the hunger strikers are not backing down, they have expressed their willingness to organize another hunger strike soon. The ongoing fight against school closures in Oakland, California, which so far has seen teacher strikes, student walkouts, hunger strikes and protests, has now evolved into an occupation of one high school that is scheduled to be shuttered, Parker Elementary, in deep East Oakland. A coalition of students, staff, and local residents have launched an occupation of the facility and have set up programming during the summer, as one report wrote, The group of about half a dozen families has occupied Parker since then, and doesn't have plans to leave unless Oakland Unified School District reverses its decision to close the school. Other community leaders, neighbors, and education advocates stop by to take shifts for supervision and security, or to drop off donations. The occupation is the latest community action against school closures, which the school board announced in January and approved in February. Parker and Community Day a school for students who have been expelled from traditional middle and high schools, won't reopen in the fall. Next year, five more schools will permanently close. 
the occupation is reminiscent of a similar action that took place 10 years ago, at the site of what was then Lakeview Elementary School. Much like now, Oost had announced it would be closing several schools, including Lakeview, in an effort to save money. Protesters occupied Lakeview for more than two weeks until Oost police cleared them out. According to PRISM reports, And more than half of the students enrolled in four of the seven schools that will close are black. Across the district, black children made up 21% of the student population enrolled in the 2020-2021 school year, and over 47% are Latinx. The closures follow a 20-year pattern of school closures that deprive black students of equal educational opportunities. You can donate to keep the occupation growing, linked in our show notes. The fight in the Atlanta forest continues, as one report on the ground stated, there are reports of clashes in the woods, as long engineering slash Atlas technical consultants are accompanied by a mass deployment of police in order to begin construction of a perimeter fence at the proposed future site of Cop City. Reportedly, protesters dispersed the bulldozer workers and police using stones and fireworks. No detentions or arrests so far. Forest defenders are calling on supporters to continue to put pressure on various construction firms to drop the Cop City project. Meanwhile, actions in solidarity with the Atlanta forest continue. In the Bay Area, a communique posted to Indie Bay wrote, We smashed windows at Consolidated Engineering Laboratories in Oakland, an Atlas company, cause smashing is fun, engineers suck, and they smashed our camp in Atlanta. They want to build a cop city to drain pigs to put down urban insurrections, and erect soulless sound stages to make shitty movies. They've buddied up with the FBI and a clusterfuck of police agencies to unsuccessfully drive forest defenders out of the woods. We hope they don't succeed, but our eternal hostility remains. Let's see how long these monuments to liberal society stand. Another communique took credit for an action in Erie, Pennsylvania also against Atlas, company contracted out to build the Cop City project. An anonymous post sent to scenes from the Atlanta forest, the communique read, Stop Cop City, defend the Atlanta forest and forests everywhere. As a ruling from the Supreme Court on the possible overturning of Roe v. Wade is expected this month, the fight for reproductive freedom continues, with ongoing targeting acts of vandalism happening across the U.S. In Linwood, Washington, a pro-life pregnancy center was vandalized with graffiti reading, If abortion isn't safe, neither are you, and also Jane's Revenge. A nod to various groups across the U.S. who have carried out similar acts of pro-abortion sabotage. In nearby Olympia, according to a communique posted to Puget Sound anarchists, Last night we vandalized four anti-abortion churches in Olympia. All of these churches have ties to anti-abortion crisis pregnancy centers, religious fake clinics that manipulate mostly poor people into having and keeping children they don't want or aren't ready for and marrying whomever impregnated them whether or not that relationship is healthy or safe. Crisis pregnancy centers are exploitative and serve the aims of upholding the patriarchal family, a primary site of violence against women, queers, and children. A Mormon church, Calvary Church, Harvard Church, and St. Michael's Catholic Church all received facelifts in the early hours of Sunday morning. We dumped red paint over the entryways and left messages of if abortions aren't safe then neither are you. Abort the church, and God loves abortion. Even in the likelihood that abortion remains legal in western Washington after Roe v. 
Wade is overturned, there are still local enemies who are doing everything in their power to make it as difficult and inaccessible as possible. These churches are terrified of people exercising bodily autonomy, whether aborting unwanted pregnancies or taking gender-affirming hormones slash surgery or fucking whomever we want, because they need the rigid hierarchy of the family as the basic unit of control. It's not even conspiratorial to say the Mormon Church, Catholic Church, and all others that punish abortion and reward marriage or patriarchal sex abuse cults. From the beginning the church has sought to control and destroy every impulse toward pleasure and self-determination. While a little graffiti may be a small gesture in the war against patriarchal religious control, we wish to highlight that it's easy and fun to attack. Our enemies are vulnerable and easy to find. In acting we learn to act, in waiting we only learn to wait. The secret is to really begin. We echo the words of some crazy bitches from over a decade ago when we say that we are not asking for the right to choose, we are taking into our own hands the ability to abort a pregnancy. We are not asking for advertisements or media that pander to trans people, we are resting the tools to change our bodies out of the control of doctors. We are not appealing to state power for an into patriarchal violence, but threatening, if abortions aren't safe, then neither are you. For joy, pleasure, and self-determination. Jane's Revenge. Bo Brown Memorial Cell. An autonomous call to action against patriarchal supremacy, from under the banner of Jane's Revenge, has also been published on a new website. The statement reads, Within the month we anticipate a verdict will be issued that overturns Roe v. Wade, setting in motion an evisceration of abortion access across the so-called United States. This is an event that should inspire rage in millions of people who can get pregnant, and yet, the response thus far has been tepid. We have agonized over this apparent absence of indignation. Why is it that we are so afraid to unleash hell upon those who are destroying us? Fear of state repression is valid, but this goes deeper than that. Your anger has been stolen from you. To this we say, no more. We need to get angry. We need the state to feel our full wrath. We need to express this madness fully and with ferocity. We need to quit containing ourselves. We need them to be afraid of us. Last week, an evil creature slaughtered 19 children and two teachers in their classroom in Texas. While some may call this horrific act senseless or random, we know that's not the case. We know that this was an act of male domination and patriarchal violence, meant to make women children and teachers live in fear. We know it is deeply connected to the reproductive violence about to be unleashed on this land by an illegitimate institution founded in white male supremacy. We cannot think of a clearer example in this time of the need for autonomously organized self-defense networks. We cannot think of a clearer example of the desperate need for those who can get pregnant to learn how to confront misogynistic violence directly. We also believe this unlearning of our self-containment can begin in the streets when we organize alongside one another to confront state forces of evil and domination. Several weeks ago, we watched and waited as self-proclaimed feminist organizations and nonprofits took the lead on arranging their demure little rallies for freedom. We were told to let them handle it, and to defer to the political machinery that has thus far failed to secure our liberation. In a world where the news media has an attention span of about 24 hours on their best day, we knew these hollow gestures would fail to capture attention. We knew we were witnessing counterinsurgency in action. 
we cannot sit idly by anymore while our anger is yet again channeled into Democratic Party fundraisers and peace parades with the police. We were even told we must cooperate with them because they work alongside abortion providers and clinic escorts, a group of people who, at this moment in time, cannot possibly risk their lives or their livelihoods any further than they already are. We honor these providers and their service. We do not honor those who would use them as a shield against direct and militant action. We believe the greatest honor we could give them would be to act meaningfully in their name. The time to act was decades ago. The next best time is now. Whatever form your fury takes, the first step is feeling it. The next step is carrying that anger out into the world and expressing it physically. Consider this your call to action. On the night the final ruling is issued, a specific date we cannot yet predict, but we know is arriving imminently, we are asking for courageous hearts to come out after dark. Whoever you are and wherever you are, we are asking for you to do what you can to make your anger known. We have selected a time of 8 p.m. for actions nationwide to begin, but know that this is a general guideline. There may be other considerations involved in planning time and place. We do not claim to speak for every community or crew. We are simply calling out to you. And we hope you answer our cries. To the cis male allies who would be interested in joining us in the streets, we say, you are certainly welcome, but you must use your privilege to shield and support us in a way that also enables us to get angry. Do not police us. Do not tell us what is and isn't appropriate. But do aid us when we are in need. We must also say, do not wait until the verdict arrives to organize. Make plans now. Take action now. It is not enough to share images on Twitter and Instagram, though that is still important to do. We cannot sustain this movement any longer with the same few hundred people who have been beaten down over and over again. We must not only circulate this call on social media, but reach out to communities who may not be in touch with radical circles online. Mass action requires mass outreach. We would not be issuing this call if we did not believe in our bones that this kind of action is possible. We have witnessed the women of Argentina, Mexico and Poland organize autonomously for their reproductive liberation. We know it can be done, but we need every soul reading this to do their part. To those who work to oppress us, if abortion isn't safe, you aren't either. We are everywhere. Signed, Jane's Revenge. Rent strikes are also currently ongoing in a manufactured home park in Lockport, New York, and in an apartment building in South Minneapolis, where tenants are fighting to force landlords to make basic improvements. Across the U.S., people also held events remembering George Floyd and the wider uprising that was launched following his brutal murder in the early summer of 2020. Marches, film screenings, and other events took place in Portland, Minneapolis, New York, and elsewhere. According to a report back from Portland, Two years have passed since the massive worldwide uprising began after the murder of George Floyd. In the span of two years the government has refused to change and instead has continued to push for more police and increasing police budgets. After two years activists in Portland planned a memorial in downtown Portland, while this event of remembrance was happening another group of activists planned a direct action event to show that we're still here and this fight is far from over. While the main event downtown marched from Pioneer Square to the Justice Center the smaller group went to the Multnomah County Sheriff's Department on the other side of Portland. 
The group planned a quick action that left four to six massive windows shattered along with all the front doors which were also made of glass. Several large pieces of graffiti were drawn on a building including Say His Name, George Floyd and Revenge is Here. The Multnomah County Sheriff's Department was targeted due to the fact it is also used as the county probation office. Several people in Portland have been excessively charged over the last two years in this building directly as attacked and tried to entrap protesters from the 2020 George Floyd uprising in the probation system. One thing that is constantly being learned and explained is how to adapt when police and the government continue to follow the same ways that got us here in the first place two years ago. Portland will continue to show up and do all the work that is needed to hopefully get to a better world one day. Solidarity with Minneapolis R.I.P. George Floyd In New York, people held marches and also a film screening. In Minneapolis, protesters marched with the banner reading, Remember May 28th, to the 3rd Precinct, where fireworks were set off and shopping carts were set on fire. And now for some upcoming events. On June 5th, there's the Bay Area Anarchist Book Fair in Oakland, California. On June 11th, there is the Day of Solidarity with Long-Term Anarchist Prisoners. Currently, there are events planned in New York, Philadelphia, and Cincinnati. From June 25th through the 26th is the Autonomous Tenant Union Network Convention in Los Angeles, California. From July 29th through the 30th is the Dual Power Gathering happening in the Chicago area. From August 6th through the 7th is the Montreal Anarchist Book Fair. From August 13th through the 21st is the Institute for Advanced Troublemaking's Anarchist Summer School. Then on August 20th is a Rock Against Racism Mutual Aid Benefit Show in Reno, Nevada. From September 10th through the 11th is the New York City Anarchist Book Fair happening in New York. And finally, on September 18th is the Pushing Down the Walls Benefit for Political Prisoners happening in Southern California. And finally, if you value what's going down as a revolutionary autonomous media resource in times of crisis and you have the means, please go to itsgoingdown.org shop. And that's itsgoingdown.org shop and help us grow. You can sign up to become a monthly supporter or give us a one-time donation. You can follow the podcast, check out our RSS feed, follow us on whatever podcast platform you prefer, listen to us on the radio, tell a friend about us, follow us on social media like Twitter, Instagram, and Mastodon. And finally, if you enjoyed this show, check out other amazing content on the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. That's going to do it for us. Enjoy the interviews and the discussion, and we will see you soon. We have to chase them. 
chase these boneheads out of here We got to chase them We got to chase them We have to chase them Chase these boneheads out of here You have the old knuckleheads, but now you have also you do love to dress up like a soldier, like a to march in the gang and make it look like a troop Greeting each other with a Nazi salute They want hatred and anger to become absolute They would use knives to stab and use guns to shoot Let us all get together, come let's take a pursuit I know we are strong, let us give them the food They run their mouth but have nothing to say We got to keep the moroses at bay They got to go, we don't want them to stay We got to chase them away We got to chase them we gotta chase them We have to chase them Chase these boneheads out of here We got to chase them We got to chase them We have to chase them Chase these boneheads out of Alexander. Um, I'm a longtime Berkeley resident, been here since 2007, and a UC Berkeley alumnus. Uh, and I also um, built the, the People's Park Community Kitchen uh, March 7th of 2021 uh, during the pandemic in the park itself. So that's kind of where my activism has been vocalized. Yeah, I'm June Nelson. I use she they pronouns. Um, I live in Oakland right now, but I got involved with the park when I was going to Cal a couple of years ago. Um, and I'm part of the group Defend People's Park, which is mostly students um, and some community members who have been uh, organizing to protect the park from UC development since last year. Um, we had an occupation. We've had events and things like that. Um, and now we're trying to call people out to the park to protect it from development. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. So there's so much history with People's Park. We could do a whole podcast on how the park was reclaimed, how it was built, the decades that went into 
uh, its defense, the various riots, uh, you know, people literally dying in the streets as part of this struggle, Reagan calling the National Guard out, uh, everything that went through the 90s with the UC trying to come in and develop it. But just kind of paint us a picture, talk to us about sort of the history of People's Park and how it connects with right now uh, and the the current push by the UC. Well, People's Park has always been a center of resistance. Even its founding, it was founded uh, in opposition or in protest to the university because the university was uh, maintaining this dirt law and not doing anything with it. And so people said, let's turn it into a community park. And it, it started um, in resistance and as a community space. And that's something that has been a major part of the park throughout its history is continual resistance against the UC. And you can see how this legacy continues in the 90s um, with and the fight against the volleyball courts. And then now, again, another fight um, coming out of that culture of resistance that's always been at the park. Maybe one thing uh, to add is the community element of the park. Um, there are people here that have been together for over a decade, some some longer, and so there's always been, you know, this community, um, you know, togetherness in this park that has really kind of kept us, um, you know, uh, kept us separate from from the UC, and uh, the, you know, that's really what's at stake right now is you know decades long community being uprooted because the UC wants to build on the park, you know, and it's just a, a new iteration of an old story. You mentioned there's been a recent occupation and different events. Do you want to just kind of walk us through what people have been doing? Yeah, well, we first started organizing Defend People's Park um, last January when the UC put up fences all around the park. There was a spontaneous, not totally spontaneous, but there was like a community rally um, that popped up. And it was a bunch of longtime park organizers and then a bunch of people who were newer to park organizing, but were really interested in like what the park stood for and at the rally we actually ended up tearing down all the fences carrying them up telegraph and dropped them off at at sprawl ha- sprawl hall which is where the chance or the administration office is where ucpd is kind of like as a fuck you to the university um and then out of that that's where defend people's park grew out of that rally because right after that people started occupying the park and doing mutual aid and raising money and providing resources while they were there and so that kind of formed the basis of our organizing was doing mutual aid and building community with people at the park and basically just trying to support people with day-to-day life as much as we could Um, so we would get tents sleeping bags clothes things that people needed Um, and we would also do our best to try to support residents with other things like for example we've helped people with doing their taxes or filling out paperwork um so yeah we've always centered on the residents and then since then we've we've started organizing um politically a lot more too with direct actions um and organizing against the university's development so yeah it's been a process but that's kind of where it all started so let's talk about what the university says. Uh, they, you know, they have always had a claim, quote, legally to the, to the space, even though they haven't controlled it for decades. They've always said that they wanted to retake the park and bring it back under their control. 
they're saying that they want to destroy the park right now and build student housing and it will include so-called affordable housing. Talk about your response to that. Uh, well, one thing I might just bring up uh, initially is that if you actually look at the the number of units that are going to be Section 8 uh, or um, 30% of your income, it's only, I think, around 20 units. The rest of it, uh, rest of the units are considered below market rates. So what that actually means is that people will be spending around 1000 to 1500 um, for those particular units. Um, no one we know right now in the park, and really no one should be paying that much. So the idea that the, the supportive housing is going to be including the current residents of the park is just uh, is a flat-out lie. You know, there's, I think, only 20 units of that, uh, of like the 97 units they're building in the supportive housing that actually would cater to the current needs, uh, material needs of the people in the park. So uh, it's just, uh, I mean, it's just disingenuous uh, on its face. And I would add even those 20 units that um, people in the park could afford to live in are probably not going to go to people at the park. They're probably going to go to other people, which like is great that people who need houses are finding, finding housing, but it still doesn't offset the fact that there's a whole entire community of, you know, at least 50 residents and probably double that of community members who use the park on a daily basis who are getting displaced by this project. Yeah, how would you say the development would tie into larger gentrification and, like, the social cleansing of downtown Berkeley? I mean, you just said it right there, the social cleansing of downtown Berkeley. Uh, I mean, we don't have that many green spaces in in berkeley you know we have aloni park we have willard we have you know people's park um and there's so many other spaces that the university actually owns that are empty unoccupied and fully able to be utilized that it's again one of those disingenuous offers like why would you take a community green space away uh when you have other opportunities to build these ginormous structures um, you know, it just plays right into the narrative of gentrification. You also, it's so obvious because the university has a plan almost at the same time as they're going to be developing the park to demolish another building on campus, Evans Hall, which is one of like the largest buildings with the most space on campus, to demolish that and turn that into like a green field um, to add to the green space on campus. So you can see how the University is just trying to create more space that is under their control um, that, you know, that doesn't actually foster community without the university's input on it. Um, and also, I, I, yeah, go, oh, go, go ahead. Jim, sorry. You're well, I, I just wanted to also add that, you know, the whole um, I, this whole process is predicated on the, uh, the university's logic is predicated on the needs of the residents, that the current situation is untenable and that to, to continue the status quo as it is, is inhumane. Uh, and it, it's kind of flabbergasting because when I first got to Berkeley, I was homeless, you know, as a foster kid. I was on the streets when I was 11. So I spent probably my first four uh, actually, six years in Berkeley on the streets before I ended up getting into Cal and going to the university. There, This park has always been a haven for the unhoused. There's always been 
you know, material needs that that needed to be met. Um, so that the university is just now coming to this realization and they hired just one social worker uh, to, to help out when there's so much more need that, that needs to be done. Uh, it, it just kind of begs the question, where were they 10 years ago? Where were they 20 years ago? Where were they 30 years ago when the homeless were still here? You know, why is it now? Do you want to talk about some of the programs and what well, maybe programs is the wrong word, but the different projects that evolve out of people's park, there's things like food, not bombs. There's gardening that goes on. Uh, there's different mutual aid projects. Can you talk about some of those things and how they kind of flow out of the space and interconnect with it? Well, I mean, personally, um, I mean, that's a good question because this is really a true space of chaos where anything can, can really manifest if you put enough energy into it. You know, point in fact, uh, I and a couple other people worked to, to build a community kitchen, which ended up having breakfast and dinner shifts Monday, Wednesday, Friday, where community members that didn't actually live in the park, but were in the wider community, could come in and could engage the community, could help uh, meet the material needs. You know, Food Not Bombs does something similar. There's, there's always this kind of ebb and flow based on the, the needs of the people here. You know, you can see the systemic injustices all around you, and a lot of folks want to do something. So it's, it's a, a park where a lot of activism happens that, that really doesn't need to be tied to an organization or, or a collective. You know, it's just, it just happens. Yeah, and it's definitely a historical um, trend, too. Like, that's why, um, that's where the anti-Vietnam War movement was and the free speech movement. A lot of those movements, um, like, involved People's Park. The speakers would be at People's Park and stuff like that because it's always just been that center of community and, like I talked about before, and resistance. Um, and people still kind of know, know that and associate the park with that type of stuff, even though it's kind of evolved over time. Um, like, for example, a lot of people come out to the park who are interested in getting involved in mutual aid, um, who are just starting their own mutual aid programs um, or like want to help volunteer and get involved in the community in that way. Um, and it also brings a lot of resources to the park, which with those people who are interested and in, with organizations like ours, those resources are able to be um, like process because some things like for example if people bring a bunch of fresh produce a lot of it will have to be cooked before people can actually eat it and sometimes that requires access to things that residents might not have um so yeah it's just like this center of resources where everything kind of comes together and can be created into something better what is known right now about the uc's plans to begin development what do you all see happening in the coming period I mean, this development has been kind of impending for a while. The university was trying to start building last year when we started occupying, um, and they've just been kind of pushing it off and pushing it off, probably just hoping that public support for the park will die down. You know, they've been putting out their propaganda, things like that. Um, but now they're, they're definitely planning on building this summer. Um, they've said that's when they're trying to break ground. And we've heard rumors that it might be as early as June, which is just starting in a few days. Um, 
So yeah, so it really is a really urgent thing, and that's why we're asking so many people to come out right now because there's not a whole lot of time left to fight before the university starts building. That that said, though, um, I do believe that this is a winnable battle, uh, and at the moment the university does come and does bring offense around the entire park and and really starts um, to begin this battle that we're going to have an incredible amount of support throughout the entire Bay Area. I really do believe that, you know, because this isn't just like a center for Berkeley. This is like a center for history, for the free speech movement. And so for, for that to be, you know, put under threat and, you know, let's just all be real. We've been a little, you know, claustrophobic because of COVID and, you know, stuck inside for a long time. I bet there's a lot of anarchists everywhere that are, are ready to, you know, give it back to the state. I mean, I hope the university is scared because the park really does have a lot of support. Uh, Like people sometimes come in from out of state. We've had people who say they're visiting like Berkeley just to visit people's park um, because they've heard about the community, the history, everything that goes on there. Um, And even last time the university put up the fences around the park, they were just about to take soil samples. They weren't even going to start breaking ground for development. And that was when we had hundreds of community members come out and tear down the fences and reclaim the park for the people. Um, So if that's what happened when the university wasn't even officially trying to build, you can imagine how many people are going to come out once once they actually try and develop on there. Is there an attempt to try to bridge the generational gap, I guess, between everyone? How do you kind of bring all those folks together and, and keep them on the same page? Uh, Well, um, I mean, if I'm going to be frank, uh, I think we all work in kind of our separate insular groups right now. Um, There there has been kind of a difficulty um, bridging that divide, if I'm going to speak frankly. There's there's, uh, resistance based on, you know, ideologies that have, you know, from different points of view and from different times that don't necessarily mesh. Um, But be that as it may, you know, we still get a lot of work done individually. Uh, And I think what we're hoping for is that once the fences do come up, you know, once the battle, you know, is no longer abstract, it's actually a real thing in front of us, that it will bring all of us together, regardless of our disagreements and maybe our objections. Uh, But it has been you know, an incredible challenge, bridging that divide and finding a way you know, to to work together when you have opposing ideologies. And I don't think we've necessarily found the the right way to do that yet, in my, my personal opinion. You mean in terms of people that are maybe trying to sue the city to block it as opposed to a direct action route or? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a perfect concrete example. There's a different belief in uh, active or how activism should be done. You know, some people think the lawsuits are the only way forward. Other people are about, you know, obstructing, say, their gate and, you know, forcing people to confront hard truths. Uh, and it, there, there's a, it's hard to kind of bridge that. Um, though I, I will say none of the lawsuits ended up coming out to anything. You know, if we remember the legislator changed um uh, change it so that you know students can no longer be considered an environmental impact. So uh, I'm I'm really not sure uh, what how that's going to move forward. Uh, and to uh, you know speak frankly, the university has yet to respond to 
do any of the lawsuits yet, which just shows you how much they're they're worried about it. Um, in in my view, and in some of the people um, I'm surrounded with, view, we think direct action is literally the only way that we are going to save this park. You know, getting bodies here, tearing down that fence, and you know, creating some civil disobedience, uh, and that has necessarily ruffled some feathers of people that want to be more um, softer with their approach, I guess. Yeah, I remember reading there was some talk of trying to designate the park as a historical landmark, and people were hoping to go that route. But but that was meaningless. I mean, it was it was beautiful, and I'm glad that happened. But it wasn't a it wasn't a federal designation. It was a state designation. And if you looked at the actual um, the the codes surrounding it, it doesn't stop someone from building on the site. It doesn't really really do anything, frankly. Besides, you know, give us something to to celebrate about once and then, you know, figure out how to, you know, really fight the, uh, the battle. So, um, you know, I would, I would challenge people to find any concrete example uh, of going, you know, the legitimate route or maybe the bureaucratic route where, where there has been benefits gained from it. Frankly, I feel like it was just a lot of wasted time that we could have otherwise used to engage more people and, and increase our, our um our activism so that when the fight does happen and we need bodies on the ground and we need to take down the fence they're here you know we didn't just waste all our time you know filing frivolous brown act lawsuits that went nowhere well for those listening if they're in the bay area or california or they want to come into the region to help support or they at least want to keep up on what's going on where should they go and how can they stay up with what's happening on the ground so we put a lot of stuff out on um, through our organizing. So one of the best ways to stay tapped in is through our Instagram. It's at People's Park Berkeley, uh, which is where we put a lot of like call outs, a lot of information about our events that we're doing or what kind of work we're doing. Um, we also have an email. If people are interested in getting involved, you can email defendppark at gmail.com. Um, and really with any any ideas or types of support, because we kind of need all the support that we get can get. Um, and we're trying to include everybody in the community. Um, and the best way to get involved in the park is honestly just to come out to the park and to start talking to people and meet the community there, um, especially when we have events. So the, that organizers are there, too. Um, but it's just a really beautiful place to be and to, to spend time and build community with people. Awesome. Well, anything else you want to talk about or go over? A lot of people at the park right now are being moved to the Roadway Inn, which is the temporary housing that is being provided by the UC for residents who are evicted from the park. Um, and there has recently been a report filed by Where Do We Go Berkeley against the Roadway Inn, specifically the staff members there who who are contracted from Abode Services, which is another nonprofit. Um, and there have been all kinds of issues there from the food being just really foul and inedible, um, not sustaining, to people being locked out of their rooms overnight. Somebody actually passed away um, at a bus stop and people thought it was because they weren't going to be allowed back in because they were after curfew even though there are guards on duty 24-7 with keys to the rooms. Um, residents there have had the police called on them. There have been all kinds of issues. And so this is the environment that People's Park residents are moving into right now. 
Um, so it's really, really important that we all make sure to hold the university accountable um, and not let their 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 words and their propaganda that they're providing housing and services that are, to all these residents to not buy into that um, and to actually check the university and make sure that they're providing what they're they're saying they're providing and making sure people can actually survive in the in the places that they're offering. Um, so I just wanted to mention that because um, you know of course we're trying to support residents over there too, and it's just you know the UC is just always adding another problem onto the problems that it's already creating and just exacerbating the cycle of oppression and homelessness and forcing people to live on to the on the streets yeah and maybe just to add to that there is a similar situation in la um i think most people in california would have heard of it echo park where they did a similar thing they, they moved all the residents there into a hotel um, and luckily, we've had a year's time. So there's there was a study done to see how many of those folks actually were on a pathway into permanent housing. Uh, and it was like something around 20 percent actually found uh, a pathway to housing. Eighty percent, um, you know, ended up back on the streets or were at a shelter or um, or some other, you know, non habitable place to live. So, you know, there's a really. Uh, sincere question about whether the university can uphold the promise that they are going to house, um, you know, all these residents and, you know, enrich their lives for the better, um, especially when they're contracting out all the work, you know, that the university isn't really doing any of this. Yeah, they're providing the funds, but it's abode services that's providing the food, it's the abode services providing the supposed counseling and, you know, uh, job training and uh, and all of that, uh, you know. Well, one easy way, uh, one um, I think you mentioned the the food uh, being basically unpalatable at the uh, roadway. You know, Cal has an incredible dining service. Why isn't it Cal Dining providing the food to the residents? Why is it that they're eating basically like thawed vegetables and two meatballs with a lump of mashed potatoes? You know, there's a lot of questions about the integrity of how Cal is doing this. Uh, and they could be doing if they if they're really sincere in their concern for the residents. It's obviously it's obvious they could be doing better. You're listening to It's Going Down, part of the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. Follow us online at itsgoingdown.org and on Twitter at IGD underscore news. If you like and appreciate this podcast, go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop and give us a one-time donation. Sign up to donate monthly or donate through Bitcoin. Again, that's itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support. And now, back to the show. Okay, once again, we're back for another week. As always, lots going on, lots to talk about. We're going to start off by talking about the shooting, unfortunately, in Texas. I know the last time we talked, we were sadly talking about another shooting. I think it is important to pause and discuss what happened there's just so many of these shootings that are taking place and it's really pathetic just kind of the rhetoric that we hear coming out from both parties you know on one side the democrats half-heartedly talk about gun control even though we know that they're not going to do anything although i'm sure most people on here don't support the state issuing another round of police orders that really are not going to do anything about the conditions that are leading to these mass shootings at all 
even the majority of gun deaths in the United States that take place are suicides, and those are largely happening because, again, of material conditions that are on the ground that, of course, the Democrats are helping to exacerbate as we speak. Um, I mean, just besides that, I mean, they're in no position to do anything, that, even though they control you know, the government in both houses of Congress, they're not going to use the filibuster. I think it's disgusting too that, I mean, looking back on the March for Our Lives movement, which was very much mm -hmm. in part, you know, a proto astroturf movement in a lot of ways, even though there was this organic mm -hmm. kind of walking out component to it. I mean, it very much was a push to get people to vote for the Democratic Party. I mean, looking back on that now, this shooting has surpassed that body count of Parkland and the Democrats are no closer to pushing through any sort of legislation or doing anything that would address it. I mean, to them, it just all comes back to another set of policy changes about automatic weapons, you know, and talking about red flag laws and all this stuff, which again, we've seen time and time again that you can still have these laws. It's not going to stop people from carrying out these shootings. I mean, on the other side of the aisle, the Republicans have just you know, particularly push these tired culture war talking points like Fox News. I was, saw one headline where they were saying, oh, they should have had an armed guard at the school. And then they realized that there was an armed guard. And they said, oh, the teacher should have been armed. And people like Candace Owens, who's like a far right troll connected to Turning Point USA, or Paul Gosar, who's a rep from Arizona, Arizona. That's, that's friendly with Nick Fuentes and the America First, uh, Groyper White Nationalist Movement. They were literally picking up stuff that was coming off of 4chan and mm -hmm. saying literally that the shooter was a leftist, undocumented, transgender person. And somehow that that was the cause of this shooting that America has somehow devolved into this disgusting, you know, den of vipers because, you know, we let trans people walk around among us and all this stuff, which I mean, is just. It's, it's sociopathic in the sense that they are there waiting for these tragedies to happen and then trying to capitalize them, capitalize on them with their own culture war talking points. I mean, it just shows how sociopathic these people are, but also just how, how dumb they are too. I mean, literally in the 4chan threads where they're pushing this stuff, they were literally saying like, this isn't real. We're going to do this in order to attack trans people because yeah. this is part of our politics and we're wanna, we want to advance this. I mean, a couple of years ago, it would have been a mass shooting. Oh, we're going to blame it on Antifa. I don't know if people remember that, but every time there was a mass shooting, they tried to say that the shooter was a leftist, anti-fascist, so on and so forth. I mean, now the people they're picking on is trans people. Um, you know, and people like Paul Gosar and Candace Owens were pushing that. Which, I mean, as we were saying before we started recording, I mean, think about that argument. They're, they're trying to say, like, they did this because they were trans, which, for one, isn't true. But does the inverse then mean if they're cisgendered that that's the reason they did it? And, I mean, isn't the vast majority of these shootings carried out by cisgendered males? I mean, yeah. it's it's just so, so stupid. Um, and, I mean, yeah. I, I just just one other larger point it just seems to me that, that we've arrived at this point in our society in which there has been this archetype that's been created of the mass shooter. And this is a way for young people that either because they're bullied, they're totally alienated, um, 
maybe they have some like reactionary or even fascist kind of set of politics. Like, you know, Elliot Rogers was an incel, Mm -hmm. you know, the parkland shooter put swastikas on his gun and was, you know, had a MAGA cap and was associated with far right politics. I mean, we were just talking about the shooting in Buffalo and he was obviously a white supremacist, but I mean, people that are sort of attracted to these reactionary, violent, um, far-right fascist currents but also just people that are totally alienated from society and just don't want to live anymore they see this archetype of the mass shooter as this way to gain infamy or you know perhaps live forever in the minds of folks to show them you know how upset they were like we were just talking about this kid that carried this out uh was bullied a lot uh, was known for cutting himself, driving around, shooting people with BB guns. Um, you know, all this sounds eerily familiar. And we were reading that people were trying to contact folks saying, like, look, this kid is not in a good way. He needs help. And nobody listened to them. And lo and behold, um, look what happened to them. But if you're a young person in America, you've grown up with after Columbine happened. But, I mean, you, you've always kind of had that shadow lingering over you i've been thinking through a lot of these things and i've been thinking back about what it was like when columbine happened i know we talked about this on the show before but um i was also in high school when that happened um and i remember getting tracked down to the guidance counselor's office right because i like to wear black and you know they asked me if i listened to marilyn manson and blah 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 right and what happens in these situations is that we always end up with these superficial explanations, right? And there's there's a political imperative for that superficial explanation. So like from the Democrats, it's all about gun access, right? Firearms access. They don't want to talk about how in many other places in the world, like say Switzerland or Canada, where there's really easy, ready access to firearms, they don't have these same problems, right? Um, that very obviously it's not the firearms that do the shooting, right? It's the person pulling the trigger and they don't want to focus on that, right? That's a hard problem to solve, right? Helping people that, that might be on a trajectory to do something like this is a hard problem to solve. Um, and for the Republicans, it's all about this sort of narrative in which this is happening now because America has become corrupted, right? But if we really think back to the patterns that we see in, in these situations, there's a number of things that emerge, right? In, in a lot of these situations, they're motivated by racism, right? Not always, but in a lot of situations, that is at least part of the motivation. We can all know the roots of that in American history, right? I don't think that there's any question about that. But with a lot of these other situations, we see this pattern of kids and teenagers not getting listened to by adults, Right. Not getting understood, not getting taken seriously. Right. In this case, um, friends were trying to reach out to people. Friends were trying to tell people um, they were expressing increasing amounts of alarm to people around them. And nobody took them seriously. Nobody did anything. Right. I mean, that's the same story that emerged out of Columbine, too. It's not like that was a surprise. You know, the students that were coming out of the school in the days afterwards, we're saying that they're entirely unsurprised it was those two people that did it. And, you know, when it happened, they guessed immediately who it was going to be. Right At the point where you can guess who the school shooter is, there's warning signs that are happening far before that. 
right? You know, like whether it's Columbine or this last shooting, I mean, these people are like 18. They're on the cusp of graduating yeah. or like getting on with their lives and like, you know, leaving high school where they don't have to deal with these people. And I think it's very telling that these people are instead choosing to end their lives and, mm-hmm. and go out like this. And mm-hmm. I think, again, it just speaks to the fact that there's been this repetition in our society. This is kind of like what you do or this is an option for you if you're someone in this position where you've been bullied and like dragged down or you just feel so destroyed and you have no future that one way you can be remembered, one way you can ascend beyond your present condition is to go out and conduct this mass shooting. And the media will remember you. You'll be flashed in the news. No yeah. one will forget you. And yeah, it's, it's sad and it's disgusting. And I think it also speaks to the fact that, you know, our society is just riddled with violence and this is how we deal yeah. with things. I mean, how else can we divorce this event from the fact that police are killing three people a day? We just came out of a pandemic where a million people, largely working class, all were killed. Um, you know, we have, we're literally in the midst of that, the coronavirus rising in cases again. Now we're dealing with fucking monkeypox. You know, we're on the cusp of a war with China, possible war with, with Russia. You know, the Ukraine war is raging in Europe. Climate change is staring us all in the face. I mean, young people are aware of these things for sure. Yeah. And they yeah. Kn- they know well, what's happening. I mean, how can you look at the future and, and have a sunny disposition? I mean, obviously <laughs> this is affecting the way that people are looking at the world and their lives. And I don't think we should be surprised when a lot of people feel like there is no future. Yeah, well, and this is also an act of hopelessness. Right. I mean, you don't do something like this if you expect that things are going to change. And so why is it that Americans feel so hopeless? Right. Many other things happen in America because of hopelessness. Right. But why do Americans feel so hopeless? Why do we feel like we're so alone all the time? And I think that there's a really logical, basic explanation for that, which is our entire understanding of life that we're taught in the United States is one grounded in atomized competition. Right. Our job is to get wealthy at the expense of others, right? We're taught that we exist as these sort of enterprising individuals who are going to go like conquer the world and do whatever we want. And everything is framed in this notion of this kind of atomized, but static and heavily defined and regulated, but still atomized individual. And so what that creates is it creates a situation in which not only are we not in control of the conditions of our existence because of basic conditions of capitalism and state, but we are also alone in that at the same time. And then when you add on top of that, the social normativity of things like social hierarchies and toxic masculinity and high school culture and so on, so on, so on, so on, so on. It of course creates conditions in which things like this could occur in which people feel so hopeless in which they feel like they've got so little left and that there's nobody coming to help, that this is the response, right? You have to feel very, very under attack to do something like this. And so rather than doing what usually happens in America, which is 
the media tries to pathologize this person and talk about all of their behavioral health issues and sort of personalize the cause, right? What we need to do in moments like this is not allow that to happen. We can't allow this to become in our time, right? When I was younger, questions about video games and Marilyn Manson, right? This is really a question of the profound loneliness and hopelessness that typifies American existence right now, right? It's about the fact that kids don't get listened to. It's about the fact that there's no mental health resources. It's about the fact that there's no help, right? If you are alone and you are under attack and you feel that way, in a lot of situations, there's nobody that's going to back you up because we're not taught to act in solidarity with each other, right? We need to not allow this conversation to have its causes get personalized like that. We have to keep this conversation on a broader level. If we don't, then the same thing repeats itself. And we end up with Democrats talking about gun control and Republicans talking about some corrupted America and nothing ever actually changes or gets solved, right? I mean, we can't rely on the state to solve this problem. There is an imperative for both political parties to represent this as a contemporary problem not as a problem which has roots in the cores of American history or the cores of American sort of ontological perspective, like ways that we understand our existence, right? Um, they don't want to talk about that because just like with the question of police violence, the only solution here is to fundamentally rethink everything about the way that we live. And that doesn't often end with the people in power staying there, right? It doesn't often end with social and economic systems that currently exist continuing to exist in the same way, right? And so there is an imperative for many of these people who think, you know, that they're doing the right thing, but there's an imperative that they have to present this as something which is just happening now, right? Maybe in the last 25 years or so, but it's not. I mean, before school shootings, it was, quote, going postal, right? when people were shooting up post offices, that was directly a response to the privatization of the postal service and people losing their severances and losing their jobs and losing union protections and getting their pay cut. That was directly a response to that. There were mass shootings. There was a mass shooting in the 1950s at the university of Texas, right? So it's like, it's not like this is a new thing. This has happened before. And we need to really keep the conversation on the level of talking about why this continues to happen socially, not what are the weapons used or what happened in the last 25 years, but what is it about the way that we live in America that makes this combination of alienation and firearms lead to this as opposed to any other outcome like it does everywhere else in the world. And it's interesting right? too that, that, that we, or let me back up. It's interesting too that the two political parties sees on these mass shootings as a way to advance either culture war talking points or their yeah. own political project. But no one talks about, you know, the deepening suicide crisis that's happening that obviously yeah. is linked to this. I mean, yeah. some, some, a lot of people are literally killing themselves and some people are choosing to kill themselves this way. I think this is like the most extreme end of it. I mean, there was an interesting interview with the Socialist Rifle Association with people in the, the UK where, I mean, the gun culture is completely different, obviously. 
Uh, but they were pointing out, like, look, like, if we're going to talk about shooting deaths, I mean, the vast majority of people that are killed by firearms are self-inflicted through suicide. And this is rising, as we've talked about on this program, among youth, but also among uh, working class and communities of color uh, young folks. So this isn't just, you know, alienated kids, you know, with access to wealth or something like that. This is happening, like, because of material conditions that people are living through. It's happening across the social terrain, affecting people on the bottom uh, the most, as most things do. Uh, but what's interesting, of course, is that we're not having the same conversations about the suicide crisis within the mainstream discourse as we do with these mass shootings. That's because... In, in order to get into why that's happening, you have to actually confront this society head on. Whereas here you can just kind of offer up this piecemeal solution of like, Oh, give this, give the teachers guns or take the guns away. Yeah. Well, and until we solve our malaise, right. Until we solve our, you know, to use the French term, our anomie, um, our just complete, um, sense of just powerlessness in life. Right. And pointlessness um, until that's overcome. The suicide crisis is going to be a thing. School shootings, school shootings are going to be a thing. Right. White supremacists are going to be a thing. And it's also a response to alienation combined with a history of racism. Right. Um, and really, at the end of the day, again, it's impossible to look around America right now and think that everything's OK. Like, not just that things are bad on sort of an economic level, which we'll talk about later, um, or a policy level, or even a political level, but on the level of core fundamental understanding of how we exist in the world, conditions are created in which, for example, for many, many, many years in American history, and I would even say this is still the case in a lot of places, um, things like needing mental health assistance was considered a personal weakness. Right. Addiction was considered a personal weakness. Poverty was considered a personal weakness. Right. And if we think about what that means, it means that in all of those discussions, that tendency in American political discourse to personalize the cause also happened. It also existed. And if we look at the net, the net result of that. It has been many, many, many generations of us not dealing with core fundamental problems and allowing that mentality to entrench itself further and further and further. We can't let that happen around this. The book Poor People's Movements, they talk about this phenomenon where when the Depression hit, people took it internally, that it was their fault. Yeah. And it yeah. took a few years for people to realize that, no, it was the system's fault. And then mm -hmm. things really started to escalate. And that's when the, the ruling class was pushed into a corner in which they had to enact things like the New Deal. Much so like when the Great Recession so-called hit in around 2008. I mean, you had things like mm -hmm. people moving out of their foreclosed houses in the middle of the night so the neighbors wouldn't see them. Yeah. You know, things like that where it was, you yeah. know, it was their fault that this was happening, not this was a systemic thing. And I think like that point that you made is so right on because in America, we've been told it's your fault that this is happening to you. You know, who cares yeah. that, that it's rigged? The game's always been rigged. If you can't keep up, it's your fault. The opposite of that is people realizing that they're in the same boat collectively together and starting to do something about it and pushing back. Um, but like you were saying, 
we're in a mental health crisis, we're in a suicide crisis, we're in an addiction crisis, all of these things, and some communities have been feeling this for decades longer than others. Let's just put that plainly. Um, but people should recognize that these are the problems caused by this system, and they're not just their personal fault. It's not their fault this is happening. There's a reason that this is happening. There's a reason that people are so sick. So let's talk about what's been happening politically. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about the midterms coming soon. Primaries have been happening. There's been sort of talk of tensions rising between the pro-MAGA Republicans and the anti-MAGA Republicans. Democrats have kind of just been shuffling along as usual. But let's really get into the Republican stuff, because I'm curious to hear your thoughts about where this is at. You know, is there a split? Is there a side that's winning? Where to start this kind of a conversation is to start with where the GOP is, right? And this question of a split. So a split would imply that there's coherent sides kind of breaking off from a central place, ending up in conflict with each other. And there's definitely a lot of conflict. There's definitely a lot of people breaking off from like MAGA world area, um, but they're not doing it in any kind of coherent way. And so what's happened instead of this kind of separate faction building up is this kind of fragmentation of conservative politics, right? And on some level, it's a sort of expression or, or a becoming obvious of something which has has been talked about about right-wing politics for a long time, which is right-wing politics is business, ultimately, right? There's a lot of money to be made, and there's a lot of people making that money. There's a lot of power to be gained, and there's a lot of people trying to get that power. And so right-wing politics, unlike, you know, liberal politics, is typified by that same atomization we were just talking about, right? It's a lot of people competing with each other for listeners or viewers or airtime or advertising revenue or whatever, right? Um, and with so much money floating around, we're really starting to see that have effects. So what we're watching is we're watching, say, one group of people kind of fragment off in that sort of Lincoln Project kind of vertical, right? Um, and they're all really trying to pull in donor money and do all this stuff to try and run candidates, right? You have this more traditional faction, which is like the Bush faction, right? These types, more neoconservative types who you know, are starting to regain some sort of voice again. Uh, you're seeing this with um, uh, with people like uh, William Crystal, right, who is on Twitter constantly, uh, you know, criticizing the, you know, kind of MAGA faction of the Republican Party and even criticizing like Bush and some of the stuff that happened in the Bush administration um, and really trying to sort of craft this identity of being a conservative, but a reasonable one. Right. Um, you see people like Condoleezza Rice moving in this direction. Um, and they're sort of hedging on this idea that they need to maintain their legitimacy to be able to have any sort of position going forward and that they shouldn't just sacrifice all the years of work that they did just to sort of bow down in front of Donald Trump. And really that faction is motivated by this idea that they know stuff and they have experience and they're trying to do the kind of Hillary Clinton thing. They're trying to do the like, we are inevitable, we are obvious sort of a thing, right? You have a faction of people that have sort of 
broken off and is trying to do this kind of revive the religious right thing. And really, Mike Pence is kind of um, in the forefront of that whole movement at this point. Um, Pence has been going around giving talks critical of Trump and critical of stuff that happened in the administration and talking about how, you know, he really wants to instill Christian values in America and blah, blah, blah. And he's using all the traditional religious right talking points to sort of, you know, gain traction. And then you start to move into the fringier parts of the far right, um, where you've got the MAGA cult still, but within that, you're watching a lot of churn happen right now. There's a lot of people who were prominent in that world that aren't anymore. There's a lot of conflict. Like, for example, uh, the trucker convoy, which I don't know if a lot of y'all know is still happening, apparently. I just I just realized this this week. Um, it's dwindled down to about 50 people. Uh, they're all camped out in Hagerstown, Maryland or something. And they're uh, fighting with their leadership. Exactly. This is, yeah, this is exactly what I was going to get to. Not only are they fighting with leadership, they almost stormed the luxury RV that the leadership bought with the donation money, right? And so the leadership of the trucking convoy essentially took the money and used it for themselves. And then the other people in the trucking convoy who stopped getting gas reimbursements like a few weeks ago, almost stormed this RV and the people in the RV had to call the Maryland state police to show up to save them. Right. That kind of thing is illustrative of so many of the other dynamics that are happening on the right wing right now. Um, and you see it even internally at places like Fox where you're seeing some Fox hosts starting to criticize people like Tucker Carlson. Right. So you can talk about how what he's doing is very destructive and so on. And that's usually coming from like the news side of Fox News, right? Um, but you're also seeing other people start to sort of stake out a position in relation to this stuff, right? And so you have this MAGA world kind of structure, but I think that there's a sense in which a lot of that is performative and empty. There's like an empty core to it now. It doesn't really have the same um, inertia it had before. It doesn't really have the same purpose it had before. They're not in power anymore. How many times can you have the my pillow guy say right. like you know, Thursday it's all going to come out? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And how many times can you ignore Steve Bannon going on his show openly talking about how he's using these people, right? Like it's not like he keeps that quiet. It's not. There's a number of other people in the right wing that are very open about using MAGA supporters and using QAnon as their cannon fodder, and they're perfectly comfortable talking about that. And it's like everybody that is still working in their proximity has to more or less ignore that, right? But that creates conflict. And so as we're watching their power wane a bit, um, or at least consolidate geographically, and I'll get to that in a second, we are also watching these conflicts build up. This is emblematic of the shift towards what they're calling, quote, dark MAGA, which... Yeah, the dark MAGA shift, yeah. To, yeah. Any, to anyone outside of that subculture just sounds horrific. I mean... I don't know. Even even if you're just like a passive Trump supporter or, you know, like, I guess he's better than Hillary type person or something like I don't see how you would be excited by that term. Like, it just sounds bad. Well, and what it implies is that they're willing to use government violence to impose their will. It's it's fascism. I mean, it's just overtly fascism. When Madison Cawthorn in his sort of concession speech starts talking about how he's going all dark MAGA and he's going to hang out with national conservatives. Like he's openly declaring himself a fascist at that point. Like literally they're using different terms for it, but the terms really even aren't all that different. 
right? And definitely the ideas are not. And so, yes, you have this dark MAGA faction breaking off. You have another faction that has very similar politics around Steve Bannon that isn't really embracing this kind of aesthetic darkness, but is definitely embracing this kind of use of government force. And then parallel to them, you also have national conservatives like Josh Howley, Tom Cotton, people like this, Ted Cruz, that are also talking about using extreme amounts of state violence to impose their will. That's a whole nother faction. And you're also seeing this kind of slow revival of the kind of libertarian wing of the Republican Party. And you're seeing that sort of show up in certain primaries. Some of these people who had been kind of involved in that wing of the party are now running in primaries against MAGA candidates, right? So we're watching all that happen. But at the same time, we're also watching Trump still endorsing people and those endorsements in, in some cases winning and in many cases losing. And so really, like, why is that what's happening? And I think we can just we can explain that through geography, essentially political geography. So one of the effects of gerrymandering in the United States is that candidates don't ever have to be accountable for anything they do or say uh, because their seat is safe. And they never have to worry about losing an election unless you go way over the top like Madison Cawthorn and then you get unseated by another Republican. But like, say, in the place I live. You barely even know the name of the Republican running. Nobody cares. They don't even show up on debate stages. They don't do commercials. You have no they run somebody for the sake of running someone. But you have no idea who that person is. I remember for Congress one year. The congressperson from from my district who had been in Congress for like 30 years and was you know a progressive Democrat, their candidate was a truck driver who never felt finished high school it, as the official Republican Party candidate in a major city. Right. And so in a situation like that, the sitting congressperson has no accountability. No one will call them to account for anything. They can do roughly whatever they want. And that's how you end up with people like Andy Biggs and Paul Gozar and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and so on, so on, so on. I mean, there's a candidate in Ohio who just won a primary for a district outside of Cincinnati who's known on the Internet because he painted a giant queue in the middle of his lawn. Right. And he won a primary against two other candidates. He had raised the most money because he was raising money nationally, unlike the other two. And it's a safe Republican district. That person, that guy is going to become a congressperson. The guy who painted a giant queue in the middle of his lawn is going to become a congressperson. And so when we see that kind of geographic consolidation, when we see political districts and political like election cycles exist without competitiveness, without any sort of risk of losing your seat. Functionally, what happens at that point is the GOP can fragment completely and it actually doesn't matter because as long as they have an R next to their name in most districts that they already control, they're just going to win. And then the real fight happens behind the scenes on the back end, right? And that's really where I think things are going to get interesting. I have no idea what that's going to look like. I, I don't think we know enough about what goes on on the back end of conservative politics, but that is where this conflict is going to ultimately play out. And it's going to play out around things like campaign donations and endorsements. We already see a version of this. We saw a version of this in Georgia recently where Brad Raffensperger and Brian Kemp, who are both Republicans, Raffensperger being the secretary of state, Brian Kemp being the governor, who are both 
who have both been targeted by Trump nonstop since the 2020 election, both won their primaries handily against Trump endorsed candidates that had name recognition. It's not like they were randos, right? Um, Brian Kemp won against David Perdue. David Perdue had been a senator, right? People in Georgia know that name. The Perdue family is incredibly prominent in Georgia. And he had Trump's endorsement and lost in a Republican primary. And what that says is that at least statewide in Georgia, the guy who is willing to defy, to defy Donald Trump is a lot more popular than the one who's not. And that's a pretty interesting indicator. Now, what's important about that, though, is that we have to read that data point in its proper context, right? The way that a lot of the political press has been approaching that very specific series of primaries is they've been saying, oh, this is the end of Trump's influence, so on, so on. That's not true in any kind of way. It might mean that for a time, kind of Trump-inspired or Trump-adjacent politics are not in the ascendancy in Georgia. But you look at Ohio, for example, which traditionally has a very moderate Republican Party, or at least comparatively moderate Republican Party, that Republican Party just got taken over by, I mean, absurdly comically right-wing pro-Trump people. Like, pro-Trump people that literally everything they say is just random words, right? Like J.D. Vance, who, though is a writer, apparently lost any ability to be coherent in the last few months, right? And now just says whatever random buzzword comes to mind, right? We were talking before about some of these ads that have come out. And if you watch these ads of a lot of the MAGA Republicans, like uh, I saw one for like the MAGA mom, you look at their talking points. I mean, they're not talking about like so-called like bread and butter kitchen table politics. They're not, they're not even talking about inflation. You know, they're talking about mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the transgender antifas are going to come and teach your kids CRT, whatever sort of like MAGA buzzwords are popular at the time. Like that's what they're yeah. going to go on. It's yeah. literally like a subculture talking to people in the other subculture. It'd be like if punk rockers were going to like, run somebody and they'd like, yeah, like vote for me and everyone gets a free seven inch of, you know, some obscure band that no one's ever heard of. It's just like, exactly. <laughs> literally, you're just speaking to people in your subculture. And of course, this subculture yes. has to be tens of millions of people across the United States that, that are into Trump and watch Fox News, of course. But I mean, if you're mm-hmm. not inundated in that culture, it just seems like a bunch of buzzwords. But I guess my question to you is that, is that a winning strategy? No. <laughs> and does that no. does that signal that sort of the periphery has evaporated and they're left with mm-hmm. this sort of like pure product of yes. people that are just super hardcore and like the only way they can really disassociate themselves from other Republicans is to say like, no, I'm super MAGA. And it's in fact, it's yeah. interesting. You can if you look on YouTube, you can watch the debates with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Some of the other Republicans are coming after her saying like, you know what? You just kind of like get up there and scream about Jewish lasers and a bunch of dumb shit, but you don't actually do anything. I think what we're seeing, and you mentioned it, uh, there's a distillation happening essentially, right? That a lot of the, um, fringe is not really the right way to put it, but kind of peripheral elements of MAGA world have drifted away. Um, and they've drifted away, I think, for some of them, it's for political reasons. 
for a lot of them, it's for economics, right? MAGA world is shrinking and the audience is getting smaller. And on a purely economic level, well, if there's the same amount of commentators for far less listeners, well, not everyone's going to make enough money just to, to get by, to, to continue to do that. And so just like any other capitalist enterprise, what happens is that they go find new market space, right? And that's fine when they're in power and they all are sort of in this, like, we're all moving in the same direction together mentality, but that's not where we're at anymore. Where we are now is there is a death struggle in the midst of the conservative movement over what direction it's going to go. And that death struggle is geographically uneven. And it's sort of spread out in different places in different, like very different ways. Um, I mean, again, you can take like Ohio is a really interesting example in in this way because, well, the idea of the MAGA Republican is somewhat new in a place like that. And there were MAGA Republicans for the last like four or five years. But the idea that someone like that would win a statewide race um, is sort of a new idea in, in a place with a, a otherwise comparatively moderate Republican Party. And. But that is an anomaly, generally. Like, that election is an anomaly. You very rarely are seeing hard-right pro-Trump candidates win statewide right now in places where they weren't in power before that. And so what you're seeing a lot of is a lot of this sort of reemergence of factions that had kind of gone dormant during the Trump years. You're watching a sort of realignment of people that fell off the periphery of mega world and sort of the directions that they're deciding to go. Um, and you're watching all of that play out in a context in which, again, because of the way that, that elections are organized in the United States, the way the districts are drawn, um, creates this scenario in which the same really weird extreme politics can kind of just replay itself over and over and over and over and over again. And like, that's not to say that there weren't always conspiracy theorists and wingnuts in the House of Representatives. There always are a few, right? You can like go back into American history and there's some real interesting eccentric characters that have been in the House of Representatives. But what's different now is that it's an entire faction and it's growing, right? Now, why is it growing though? Well, it's growing because of this kind of geographic concentration. And what MAGA World is doing really effectively right now is they're sort of identifying districts where they already have power or are very close to having power, and they're really pushing hard in those areas, right? They're pushing hard in other areas too, but they're losing in those areas. They're really heavily focusing on trying to maintain the position that they currently have. I think what's going to get really interesting as we go forward is we're going to see a divergence at some point where the political reality on the ground is not going to reflect the political reality within the conservative movement on an organizational level anymore. Um, that ultimately there's only one chairperson of the Republican party and that person's going to come from a faction, right? Um, there's only so many state Republican chair people. There's only, only so many state committee people, right? And all of those places are going to become battlegrounds for this factional fight. Um, what comes as a result of that, I think, is a big open question, but it could ultimately result in a either significant damage being done to the MAGA the sort of movement, if that's what you want to call it, um, or some sort of collapse, which leads to something new. 
but I don't think that what we're going to see going forward is Donald Trump being the figurehead of a growing political movement. Um, that that era is over and it's been over for a while. And we're just sort of starting to see the the visible emergence of that, I think, right now. But in that in no way means that they're not dangerous at all. In fact, I would say that they're oh, of they are. more dangerous as they sort of mm-hmm. shrink. Absolutely. Well, and as they distill, they get more extreme, right? Like this is this is the part that's really disturbing. We we mentioned this, you know, we were talking about the Nashville bombing when that happened. And one of the things I said is, um, you know, if Trump loses, uh, one of the side effects of that are going to be more lone wolf attacks, right? We haven't really seen that happen yet, but the conditions are there. Um, there's a lot of people who have been extremism researchers for a long time, like people who go back to the 90s, who have been writing recently about how the conditions that they see now inside of the MAGA faction of the Republican Party are actually very conditions that they saw in the militia movement leading up to things like Oklahoma City and Ruby Ridge. Right. That there is this kind of process of purification, right, essentially, where this kind of purity fight happened and people that were deemed impure were sort of pushed out. Right. And that's what we're seeing happening in MAGA world. We've been seeing that happen for a while. Um, the problem becomes as that happens, there are fewer and fewer and fewer checks, less and less people to push back. And so these ideas which already at this point exists completely within a political and discursive bubble that's divorced from any kind of observable reality the rest of us live in, um, can now fully embrace the limitations of that bubble and just grow within it entirely without anyone looking at what's going on, without anyone being able to try and push back or stop it. Um, and that will lead ultimately to the shrinking of the MAGA faction of, of the Republican Party, but it will also lead to conditions in which these far more dangerous, far more deadly things can happen. That's the thing, you know, we've been saying for a while that we need to be paying attention to that coming out of MAGA world. But increasingly what I'm seeing, and we see this with the the Texas shooting, right? Um, The distance between the far right parts of the internet and the Republican Party has shrunk down to almost nothing. And so what's essentially happening right now is the rhetoric you would have heard out of the Aryan Nation in the late 90s, you're now hearing out of Tucker Carlson, literally. You know, the Great Replacement Theory is something which comes out of the white supremacist movement, very directly, very directly. And so when Tucker Carlson talks about, how does he put it, uh, authentic Americans, is that the term he uses? Um, when he uses language like that, those are all white supremacist talking points. It's not, that's not theory, that's not conjecture. You can go back and read lectures by Richard Butler where he uses exactly the same language, right? David Duke, so on, so on. Tom Metzger, they all use the same language, right? And what happened in the militia movement at that period and the white supremacist movement at that period is as the moderate faction of the Republican Party was sort of in ascendancy under George H.W. Bush, those factions got more or less disowned. They got pushed down into sort of this obscurity and the Republican Party picked up their talking points and started using their talking points, but they wanted to disavow the people themselves. And in that process, what happened is that those groups and those networks had no one else to work with except each other. And then you started seeing these crossovers happen. You started seeing things like 
sovereign citizen groups, which definitely have a kind of racist connotation to them, really openly embracing things like neo-Nazism, right? Which was not necessarily a thing that happened in the late 70s, right? You watched um, Christian fundamentalists all of a sudden start to become white supremacists or Christian dominionists or, you know, people involved in bombing abortion clinics or something like that, right? All of that was a result of this kind of distillation and concentration of a fringe faction. The difference now is that that fringe faction has a lot of money behind it and controls entire media outlets and has millions of adherents. Right before the Buffalo shooting, uh, the New York Times did a really deep dive on Tucker Carlson. But in there, they exposed that someone was able to get a hold of like an organizational chart of Fox News and actually, Peter Brimlow from VDARE was on there reporting directly to Rupert Murdoch. Mm-hmm. And the response mm-hmm. that they gave was that Murdoch was hiring him to work on his memoirs or something like that. Again, if you don't know, Peter Brimlow is sort of one of the people like Richard Spencer, who he's a good friend of, and uh, Jared Taylor from American Renaissance that helped kind of birth the modern alt-right and white nationalism. Mm-hmm. Another point that you'll probably remember when Richard Spencer gave that Hail Trump speech in D.C. where all the alt-right people threw up the Nazi salutes, he was one of the people on the stage that was there that they were saluting while yep. they were doing that. That's Peter Bremlow. Yep. He runs a website yep. called VDARE, which was cited several times in the Buffalo Shooters Manifesto. But again, it just shows you how close these things are coming to each other uh, when you have people like Peter Brimlow literally on the payroll of Fox News. Um, and of course they're saying now in light of the investigation, of course they don't know, you know, they're saying that he is not employed there. But I think that really signals that at least that faction of the ruling class really wants to promote these white identity politics, this racial resentment politics, uh, really reaffirm white supremacy as a way to sell their ideology, which is really just protecting mm-hmm. the interests of the rich. Um, yep. You know, that's what they're doubling down on. You know, they're not talking about capital gains tax anymore. They're talking about, you know, illegal transgender leftists, you know, killing your kids and stuff like that. And yeah. there's a reason for that. I mean, look who they're signing the checks to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, and it's, it's one of these things where, where you're watching parts of the Republican Party start to recognize something that I think they had like more moderate factions had missed for a long time. Um, and that is that most Americans don't actually care about rich people staying rich. <laughs> right. Most Americans have a lot of resentment towards the wealthy. And in the past, this whole idea of trickle down economics, they were able to, to sort of sneak through. Right. It's able to kind of fly. Um, but as the Great Recession happened and as economic conditions declined really dramatically, um, all of a sudden, the overt kind of material observations that any person paying any attention could make would demonstrate that the last 30 years of trickle-down economics was an abject failure, right? And so going up now and saying, oh, yeah, well, really what we need to do uh, – like, remember, Mitt Romney's 2008 presidential campaign – was based on separating the makers from the takers. And he wants to celebrate the makers, which are like factory owners who like hire people because it was like those people that built America, not the workers who actually built shit, but the people who wrote their checks, 
that's who built America, right? And even at the time in 2008, before the Great Recession, or in 2012, just afterwards, right? Before the Republican Party had really picked up on populism, there were still people saying, look, dude, you can't do that. Like, you can't talk that way. And Romney lost, at least in significant parts, because of that offhanded comment that was covertly recorded at a benefit where he said something along the lines of, you know, 43% of the American public is completely useless. Right. Very obviously, he can't win using that kind of rhetoric. It was directly, so, it was directly connected to people, I think, on welfare or something like that. Yes. Yeah, Which of course had people that receive social services. Yeah. So, I mean, a very racially coded language. And again, I mean, it just shows you Mr. Mitt Romney. I'm going to march with BLM, all that stuff. I mean, again, like it's different shades of white supremacy. You know, there's the Trump version. There's the Biden version. There's the Romney version, but it's all the same. It's all part and parcel to a system that's racialized. Yeah. And you, so you have these kind of dynamics going on now where. You know, on one hand, you have these political factional fights happening. But on another hand, there's this huge imperative for conservatives to have to sell their politics to people. Because, again, if you ask an auto worker in Lordstown, Ohio, whether they care that billionaires are getting tax cuts while they don't get health care, they're going to say, hell no, tax the rich. I want my health care. Right. That same person voted for Trump and also voted for Obama twice. Right. That's the important part here. So I think that there's kind of these two questions happening and, and it's all sort of wrapped into this much bigger question of a shift in American politics. Um, 30 or 40 years ago, uh, when people would criticize the rich, Republicans would say, oh, that's just class war. You're just engaging in class war. Right. And they kept that rhetoric going all the way up through Obama. Right. Oh, that's just all class war, um, which was a really ironic use of that term. Uh, but after Trump, you don't hear them talking about that anymore. You don't hear them using that language anymore. Um, and I think part of that is there are a lot of people within the conservative movement now that weren't a part of it in the past that do believe those things. And those people came in through the Tea Party first and then Trump. Um, but then there's plenty of other people in the Republican Party, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, Rona McDaniel, people like this who, well, I, I think that they, they recognize that if they don't speak this way, if they don't toe this line, um, it's going to be very, very, very difficult for them to win. And so really what we're watching is we're watching a competition over marketing strategies happening within a major fundamental core shift. That's happened in American politics since the Great Recession. And that is that now questions of class are very central to American politics, right? Questions of race are very central to American politics, but questions of class emerging as a core category amongst others, but a core category within American politics is a recent development. And it's a thing that you see indications of both with Trump, but also Bernie Sanders, right? Um, and it's not just millennials and Zoomers, you know, it's older people too. And it's really this kind of an emergence again of this idea that, um, obviously it's not thought of in 
class in the sense of being a group that has solidarity with each other. But it's thought of in on this level of, again, atomized individualism, this idea that I'm poor and that person's rich and I resent that person because they have things that I'm deprived of. Right. Not this person got rich off systematically exploiting the labor of you know, generations of people. And maybe we should all band together and do something about that. But no, it's I am angry at that person to the degree that politics stays there. And it's a question of personal resentment. The conservative movement has a lot to gain by using that rhetoric. And so you are going to watch factions of the conservative movement continue to use that rhetoric because it's very effective. And what it's, you know, and what it indicates, though, is, again, we can see this factionalism building up. Someone like Bannon is leaning into populism really hard right now. If you listen to Steve Bannon, if you listen to him over the last couple of months, one of the things you're seeing is you're seeing him talk a lot more about things like embracing populism, talking about class, embracing social programs, things like this, because that's what the working class wants. And he wants the Republican Party to be a working class party. Right. He's embracing all of those things very pragmatically. And if you notice what he's not embracing, he is not embracing the culture war stuff. He will bring it up, but it is definitely not the core of what he is saying. Right. It's definitely not central to his politics in any kind of way. Right. Sure, he is a racist homophobe, but that's not what he himself is emphasizing when he's talking about politics. Right. Or when he's doing projects around politics. What he's emphasizing is he's emphasizing this sort of uh, growth of an international nationalist, for as paradoxical as that is, conservative populism. Um, and he's being very successful in that. And their kind of embrace of Viktor Orban in in um, in Hungary is one more sort of indicator in that direction, right? And so we're going to watch that shift continue. I think what's going to get really interesting, though, is we're going to have to see to what degree the Democratic Party is able to attempt to recapture that narrative, right, to recapture that mantle of being the party of the working class. Um, you're already seeing – I mean – I use Ohio as an example a lot because it's politically, there's a ton of shifts going on in Ohio right now uh, that are really interesting. But um, you have a candidate like Tim Ryan, who is the Senate candidate for the Democrats in Ohio. And Tim Ryan is an, another politician who really does this whole like, I'm a member of the working class. I came from Mahoning County, which for those of you that don't know, Mahoning County is where like Youngstown and Lordstown sort of are and around. Um, and, you know, he's like, I'm from Mahoning County and, and you know, this is all like working class and, and we really need like universal health care and stuff. And he's doing that whole economic populism thing. What's fascinating about that race is that J.D. Vance, his opponent, is also doing the same thing. And so right now you have two Senate candidates in Ohio running against each other, both of which are sitting there trying to out demonize the rich over the other one. And talk about how they're representatives of the working class better than the other one. It's really weird. Right. But what's the key difference? If you look at uh, what J.D. Yes. Vance is saying, he's blaming immigrants. Yep. Whereas I'm sure the Democrat person is not, even though their policies are, you know, attacking migrants at the border all the time. I think the thing is, though, is that, look, I mean, obviously the Democratic Party, they can pay lip service just like Obama or just like. Biden did to, you know, the fight for 15 or healthcare, mm -hmm. 
taking away student debt. But they're fundamentally opposed to doing that because it actually threatens to take away some sliver of what the capitalists have. I mean, the Republicans can scream into the night about culture war stuff. It doesn't matter because in the end, it doesn't really threaten anything structurally, you know? And that's why the rich love it so much. I mean, yeah, divide people, make them hate migrants, make them hate trans people, make them hate, you know, quote, communist Antifa folks. I mean, you know, that stuff's great for them because then they have a, they have an outlet for that anger. But once people actually start demanding they want structural changes that actually cut into the profits of the rich, I mean, that's something they can't abide by. And that's something that obviously people on the left want from Democrats, and they're just not going to get it because the Democrats refuse to do that because they know, again, who is financing them, who their masters really are, and that's something that they're not going to do. Well, and it it creates this dangerous condition for the political class, right? And it's one that in a lot of ways, the Democratic Party is based on mitigating this danger. Um, And the Republican Party is just starting to to kind of come into contact with it. But, you know, I've said this before, but the Democratic Party is is effectively a coalition of the moderate wings of all of the social movements of the last like 50 years, 60 years. Right. And their process of recuperating those social movements is very well honed at this point, right? There are direct personal advantages on the level of economic wealth and career status for becoming a part of the Democratic Party in certain parts of the country. And there is a personal imperative to give up more radical politics to do so. Um, there are plenty of people that don't, but there are plenty of people that do. And the Democratic Party has this almost incredible ability in a lot of parts of the United States, especially in cities, to over and over and over and over again engage in relatively effective counterinsurgency and frame that counterinsurgency as an attempt to empower people through the political system, right? Like, it's astonishing to watch um, them say things like, we're going to empower the black community, come join our budget committee. <laughs> Get out of the streets. We don't want that. Come join our budget committee. We might listen to you. Let's count that as empowerment. It's a ridiculous idea, right? That empowerment of the Democratic Party is giving your political power away to somebody else, right? Through representationalism, it's, it's absurd. But they figured out a relatively effective narrative that they use in order to sort of allow for populism to function or allow for sort of class analysis to happen, allow for there to be a faction of the party which does use radical language, even if they don't really mean it, and allows for sort of discussions of things like socialist policies, even though, you know, socialism's bad and so on, so on. Um, they have a whole discourse that kind of traps and captures that stuff. But the Republican Party doesn't. And what we've watched is we've watched the Republican Party start to destroy itself. Because what's happening is Republicans are now challenging other Republicans based on class position and questions of economic privilege. And they're saying, you can't possibly represent these people. You've been rich your whole life, (laughs) right? Which, fair, it's ironic those same people almost always support Donald Trump, who grew up a rich kid who's never had to work a day in his life. But that aside, the fact of the matter is, is that there is this element within Republican politics now, which is based in delegitimizing the political class, 
or trying to, not necessarily delegitimizing the American political project, obviously, but delegitimizing the people that are currently in power, right? At least most of them. Um, calling them rhinos, right? Republicans in name only. Um, they're ch- like, there's a lot of primary challenges happening amongst Republicans now. Um, this was a phenomenon that really, really, really picked up steam with the Freedom Caucus and the Tea Party. A lot of the Freedom Caucus members were people who won primaries over other Republicans. And so that is building again. The difference is, is that after Trump, the populism now is a lot more violent. It's a lot more forceful than it's been in the past. And so someone like J.D. Vance starting to talk about how much rich people need to like pay and how really, you know, the people of the working class need to like, you know, be able to have things that they need and stuff like that. How he really understands that because he came from a poor rural working class community and he wrote a whole book about it and so on, so on, so on. Like, obviously, he doesn't mean almost any of that stuff. But the fact of the matter is, is that he says it because it's popular. And he has a chance to win based on that rhetoric. But if they can't control what they're unleashing, they could be in a lot of trouble. And we're starting to watch a bit of that edifice shake itself apart because the factions that they unleashed are now the ones that are at each other's throats. And that's really where we're going to watch big institutions like the Republican Party fragment and potentially fall apart. Not tomorrow or in a year, but we are watching the beginning sort of elements of what, if we look at other, not in the U.S., but in other parts of the world, political party collapses, they usually happen in similar contexts. Yeah, well, I mean, as soon as anybody within the Republican Party actually starts asking for something for the working class, you know, Mm -hmm. most likely a segment of it racialized, uh, they're going to find out how far they're going to get because they're going to see who actually runs things and who actually runs the party and who funds it. And they're not going to get very yeah. far and they're going to get kicked out. I mean, faux populism is fine, especially when it's directed at brown people and Black Lives Matter and, you know, union organizers at Amazon. That stuff's awesome for them. But whenever it starts yeah. actually asking for structural change or things that the rich don't want to give up, I mean, they're going to see how far that populism actually goes and who actually supports it, you know? And we've, I mean, that's, that, that, right? <laughs> that's, that's literally the history of fascism too. I mean, it's always had that sort of populist veneer to it. And yes. it, it's always been in bed with a section of the conservative movement, a section of big business, even though it's basically sold itself as that we will take capital out of the hands of the capitalists. We will take the state yes. out of the hands of the politicians and run it for the nation, the people, the race. And, you know, it still is beholden to those forces because it's still an, an economy and it's still based around wage labor, of course. Yeah. And so I think the thing that I know I'm paying a lot of attention to right now as there's this kind of distillation and fragmentation process going on, as I'm starting to pay attention to see who is now doing things like speaking at each other's conferences, right? What groups are publishing in each other's journals, Right. What websites are cross posting each other's articles? Right. If we can track that stuff, that's where we're going to start to see the internal dynamics of some of this factionalization play out. Right. I mean, a lot of us did a really good job of this when we were tracking the alt right. And before that, many of us did a very good job of this. We were tracking neo Nazis. Right. Just in general. Um, and we, we map 
their whole networks out just by, you know, looking at Stormfront, seeing what usernames are posting in relation to other things and what they're saying and who's saying if things affirmative of other people's positions and who's coming to defend other people in arguments and, and so on. You can build an entire relational map out of that. And like, I mean, <laughs> we were doing this based on Stormfront data. We weren't using computerized methods for that. We were doing all that stuff on spreadsheets by hand. Um, it's possible. It's doable. And in this case, we don't even have to be that detailed. What we need to be doing is we need to be paying attention to what is happening in that world and how their rhetoric is changing, right? Um, so, for example, one of the things I'm seeing is I'm seeing people like Alex Jones are really losing a lot of pull right now. And part of that is because he has denounced January 6th. And he said he still thinks it's a false flag operation, but he said that it made them look bad. And anybody that's trying to replicate that shouldn't get listened to because what they want to do is really damaging, right? He's Since gone he against the that, dark MAGA. Been, he did. He went against the dark MAGA, and he's been more or less pretty ostracized from Republican politics. Of course, Alex Jones still has his own sort of faction going on, right? His own constituency. Um, but he lost a lot of the power he had gained during the Trump years by going against the MAGA crowd around January 6th, for example, Right. We're watching someone like Josh Howley, who, you know, starts off in the 2020 election cycle talking about, you know, like using the military to crush protests and, you know, how he, you know, really believes the election was stolen, how he's going to like lead the campaign in the Senate to like overturn the election. And he was playing this game for this really long time. And then right after the election stuff was more or less settled after January 6th. He immediately pivoted and started speaking pretty much exclusively at national conservative events. And that tells us a lot about both him and what his political intentions are. Right. He is embracing a faction which is more or less openly fascist and unapologetically so. And he is doing that as a way to gain political pull. Right. Um Dan Crenshaw, we watched just end up in a bunch of conflicts around stuff like this. Like Dan Crenshaw is another one that went against the dark MAGA, right? And he's sort of like, is been doing this thing where he's like traveling around the country, giving speeches to groups of young people and kind of recruiting people into some organizations he has connections to. Um, but very specifically is critical of things like TPUSA now. And so what did Charlie Kirk do? Charlie Kirk went out and tried to destroy him and he like, drafted other Congress people into that campaign, right? This is what I'm talking about. Um, we're watching a process of alignment happen that may not actually result in something coherent coming out of it. That might result in something on paper being coherent, but actually being a lot more like the Democratic Party, which is not really a party. It's more of a coalition of factions, right? Um, the Republican Party still has party discipline. Like they operate as a party. We watch it happen in the Senate all the time. And they're actually really effective at party discipline almost as well as parliamentary parties in Europe are. Right? Not quite. They're definitely dis in that way. They enforce a uniformity, right? That's never going to persist into the future. There's too many people competing with each other over too much for that to continue. 
And so as that breaks down, that's the process that I think everyone should be paying attention to. We're starting to watch the beginnings of that happen now. But this is the time we really need to be attentive to what's happening in that world. Um, we need to be paying attention to outlets like Politico that are reporting on that or Vice is reporting on that world a lot. The Daily Beast does some really, really all day on Facebook doing open source intelligence, right? Um, that's definitely not what I'm calling for. What I am asking people to do is read the political press and try and keep track. That's it. Um, if we can do that, we're going to be in a much better position to address what comes out of this when it comes out of this, like when the result happens. If we don't do this, um, we're going to get caught off guard just like most of us did with Trumpism, right? Which seemingly for a lot of people looked like it came from nowhere and sort of had this social shock effect to it, right? We can't let that happen again. We have to be prepared. Anybody that was paying attention to things Trump was saying leading up to him announcing he was going to run for president could tell you what his announcement speech was going to say. Right. The problem is, is that most people that were in a position to or had a political disposition to oppose him weren't paying any attention to what he was doing. And we can't let that happen again. We saw what happened when people took their eye off someone like Donald Trump. And sure, back when that was happening, there were way fewer means to keep track of people consistently. Definitely not like there are in 2022, but we need to be actually doing that work because we need to be tracking this stuff. This is going to get more confusing. I'm just going to promise you that it's going to get more confusing. It's going to get weirder, right? The factions that are going to break off are going to get more and more and more fringy. And you just got to kind of read it and internalize it and keep moving. And read the next thing tomorrow and internalize that and start to do actual correlation. You know, like I've been having discussions with people about like information media literacy and stuff a lot over the last couple of days. And one of the things I pointed out is that conspiracy theorists do this thing where they isolate data points from all of their contexts and then try and point out some anomaly of the data point and then through inference and conjecture, draw an entire narrative based on that one anomaly. Right. Um, when Donald Trump rose to power, that is what a lot of people were doing. There was a lot of conjecture. There was a lot of looking at individual things that were said or individual instances or something like that and trying to draw these like huge, massive implications from it. And what wasn't happening is people weren't taking information in context. They weren't looking at Donald Trump as a historical figure. They weren't thinking about him as a person who had been a political commentator on the right wing for a few years, very prominently before he ran for president. It wasn't just The Apprentice. It was the fact he was on Fox News like at least once a week for multiple years before that, right, before he ran for president. Um, we, needed, we need to think of Trump in the context of America. It wasn't just that a bunch of people voted for him because they were very racist. There were other things going on there. And that complexity is something we have to understand. The thing is, is that, again, this is going to get more complex and it's going to get weirder. And we can't dwell on how weird it gets. Right. I think anyone that researched QAnon can tell you that if you were researching QAnon and were dwelling on how weird it got, you would never actually develop an analysis of anything. You would get stuck 
in the sort of oddity of what was going on, right? Um, and we need to not allow ourselves to do that. We have to think of the people that are doing these things as people who are telling us what they're doing, largely. They're not hiding things. They're being really overt about it. They're telling us what they actually do think, right? And until we have some sort of proof or evidence that they're lying in some sort of systematic way, we have to take what's happening sort of, you know, in the sense that we're observing it, right? And not allow ourselves to fall into these sort of simplistic, reductionistic, conspiracy-motivated um, forms of analysis, which are just largely based on lack of information, right? So we need to really be focusing on these things because I'll tell you right now, the person I'm most worried about is not Donald Trump. The person I'm most worried about is Josh Howley right now. Because Josh Howley is a person who is gaining power and has aligned himself with really dangerous authoritarian right-wing factions, very overtly and unapologetically. And unlike Donald Trump, he's a person with an advanced law degree from an Ivy League school. And he is for his entire history, been considered one of the most articulate and intelligent people that a lot of professors or colleagues had ever interacted with, even if they disagree with him. That person's a lot more dangerous than Donald Trump, because that's the kind of person that starts to sit there and look at this ecosystem that's building up and start to handpick the factions that he wants to try and utilize to gain power. That's the person I'm a lot more worried about. And that's the person we need to be paying attention to, that person and the lone wolf that might come out of this distillation process. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.